0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of New Books in Sound Studies, a New Books Network podcast series. My name is Khadija, and I'll be your host for the day. I'm here to interview Professor Steve Rizaka on his 2020 monograph, Sonic City, Making Rock Music and Urban Life in Singapore. He recently retired as Associate Professor from the University of Lethbridge, Canada. He is also a rock music artist and I would call Sonic City a passion project of Firzaka as a musician. Sonic City is an ethnographic project centered around a community of noisy people who make rock music within the urban life in Singapore. The heart and soul of this community is English language rock and roll music pioneered in Singapore by several members of the 1960s legendary Beats and Blues band, the Stray Dogs, who continue to engage this community in a sonic way of life. Without further delay, let me welcome Steve Farzaka on board. Thank you Steve for joining me today. Let me start our conversation with a curiosity about the sonic question addressed by the book. In a space like Singapore, almost filled with the sound of silence, can you detail a bit about the sonic experience of the project? Would a work on rock and roll music have manifested if you were not a musician?
0: Ah, uh, that's that's a great question. Well, of course, the uh, a project on rock music in Singapore could continue or uh, uh, exist without the mu- musician element of it. Um, but of course, the, the musician aspect uh, provided me some entry into this community, as as you know, all communities kind of protect their boundaries and borders in various kinds of ways. And so, you know, I I certainly could have been an anthropologist uh, uh, walking into the guitar shop and asking these guys if they'd be willing to consent to a... Project, but the musician aspect gave me an entry and access that uh, provided more intimacy and led to the kinds of relationships that I'm sure we're going to talk about later in the podcast. So being a musician was very helpful um, in my case and with this community. Uh, uh, it's not entirely necessary, but but it's helpful, and that's how this all began. Actually, the sonic experience of it all. I was jet lagged when I arrived to be a, a senior fellow at the Asia Research Institute, and and so I just looked up online where the guitar shops were because I play guitar. It's been a part of me, you know, since uh, I was a teenager. And, and I went down and this is uh, when I started meeting people in the guitar shops. And the very first time I visited Guitar 77, there was this older guy standing behind the counter with long gray hair um, and there was a guitar, uh, hanging on the rack that I wanted to play. And so I asked him if I could play it. He said, yes. And, and I started to play and he, uh, yelled out to me, Oh, you're a blues man. And I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> I, I I don't know if I'd call myself a blues man. And so then he picked up his bass guitar. He's, he plays bass guitar. This is Keon, uh, uh, Lim Keong, who is a major figure in the book. And, and we sat down and played an old classic uh, blues song, Stormy Monday. And and at the end of it, we both looked at each other and said, uh, uh, you know, and I know we could play together so that that is kind of how this whole sonic experience uh, uh, began. And and. um. At least within this community, I have to admit, uh, later, not not long after that, that encounter, a colleague invited me over for dinner and I was walking to her house and and I walked past a mosque. And the call for prayer was of course turned inward, not allowed to be publicly broadcasted. And and that's when I began to kind of think about sound in society uh uh seriously and, and thought, wow, you know, maybe there's some kind of uh project or story here, at least a story that, that's compelling and interesting to follow. So I think any anthropologist uh, and, and you know this, you know, what our skill is we practice a, a habit of noticing until it kind of becomes an art of noticing, you know, and and um, paying attention ethnographically is kind of baked into me. And I think all of us that, that take on this, this uh, uh, interest in career and profession and that kind of thing. So, I mean, when I immediately started meeting the guys in the guitar shop, I, I began to think ethnographically um uh and and so uh that that's how this whole book and my experience with with this community began
1: that's an amazing answer the methodological right. core of the project is Sonic ethnography which starts from the basement of Peninsula shopping center a veteran mall that sells musical instruments and spare parts. Through sonic ethnography, you are trying to study the Singaporean popular culture. Please share a bit more about sonic ethnography to our listeners. How is it different from an "quote unquote" ordinary ethnography?
0: Well, it's not really. Um, I used and continue to use, (laughs) you know, kind of old and tried and true ethnographic methods of long-term fieldwork, learning the language, uh, participant observation interviews. For this project, I didn't do many formal interviews. They were mostly unstructured uh, uh, kind of emergent conversations. Um, but uh, there there were some differences for this. Um, one, sonic ethnography for me is not so much paying attention to the sonics of some soundscape, although that's part of it for sure. Um, but sonic ethnography for me uh, is attention to the social life of sound to kind of reference uh, Arjuna Potterai and his social life of things. Um, and and that's what uh, uh, intrigued me about this this project and and you know I I call it a project and it is a project and we and um, when I talked with all of the guys about it, We discussed it as a project to make sure everyone knew that some analysis was going to come out of this, some writing and perhaps a book and that kind of thing. Um, What what, uh, happened was I began to take seriously, you know, the notion that sonic participations and the making of sonic knowledge can constitute a way of life and living. And, and I picked this up from another other ethnomusicologist and, and anthropologist working on music uh, and sound. Um, Simon Frith, you know, said once said that um, making music isn't a way of expressing ideas, it's a way of living them. And, and that influenced me greatly. Um, Stephen Feld in a similar note, uh, uh, and his work with jazz musicians in Ghana, uh, referred to this living with sound as as an acoustomology, um, a way of knowing the world through sound. So th- these ideas that were already circulating, uh, uh, in 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 a um, you know, in 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 publication and that kind of thing and and work on sound uh it influenced me greatly uh and so um my methods were organized around acoustomologies, uh, uh communities who produce a way of knowing the world through sound and and um that's kind of how i organize my methodology um again the methodology for sonic ethnography it draws greatly upon traditional ethnographic methods Um, as i said uh, the participant observation and interview and long-term field work the long-term element is very important to this as you as you know from from your own work i mean uh over the six years that this was a project and i'm still in touch with these guys. In fact, I'm going back next month for uh, a concert, um, a memorial concert to uh, celebrate the life of a legendary Singaporean guitarist, Jimmy Apadurai Chua, who just recently passed. Um But the long term element was was key because that's how trust and rapport and and uh, between myself and and the people I got to know in this community was established. And that trust and rapport allowed me to go much deeper into this project than than I could have without any of that as just a kind of researcher showing up in the community and that kind of thing. Um, So uh, the methods included traditional ethnography. We also um, I, I of course, consulted a whole variety of cultural studies and ethnomusicology and other anthropologies of of sound and music. in addition to the ethnographic methods as they take place in Singapore, uh, this was a multi-sided uh, uh, ethnography. We, we traveled uh, as a band and as a community. Uh, usually when we traveled to play in other Southeast Asian cities, we had a whole group of, of us that followed along. Um, social media. And, and devices <laughs> of all kinds played a huge role in this especially what whatsapp and um and other uh uh social media sites and ways of communicating our uh recordings uh, uh of music from the past and our own recordings of ourselves were uh great sources of, of data for me um and and again uh, uh was central uh, was a central feature of this community in the first place um I, I had the opportunity to access different kinds of archives. So uh, the National Library has, has a um, a collection of oral histories done in the 90s with with some of the major 1960s Singapore musicians. Um, I also met fans uh, uh, and local historians who ha, uh, were intensely interested in this period and had huge collections of records and 45s and posters and and all kinds of artifacts um, that were relevant uh, to this community I was working with. Uh, remember this community was organized for the most part, around a group of musicians that that were multi generational, but but the nineteen sixties guys Lim Keong, James Tan, and the other stray dogs were were a kind of central force, organizing force um, uh, for this entire group, uh, and so. Um, being able to kind of peruse someone's collection of records and, and posters and tickets and all kinds of things. magazines uh, uh, was was really useful. Um, the, the other thing we did methodologically that was unusual. Was we wrote music together, uh, and and this we decided we were conscious about it. I said, look, guys, I'm an anthropologist. I like to tell stories about the everyday. Um, how about we write music about everyday stories uh, as they happen and over the course of this project and that's what we did um and so we wrote a number of original compositions that just reflected things that were happening to us uh I, I wrote about going in the Kapitiam shop and, and uh, uh, having the Kaya toast. And, and uh, we called the name that song Shokla because uh, the, the taste was so choke and, and just being there was so choke. And uh, I, we wrote a composition about when I passed out. During a rehearsal, (laughs) Uh, I'm an old guy, you know, so things happen. I I passed out and I ended up in the hospital and and we wrote a tune about that. We wrote a tune about going to Yangon and Myanmar um, and so on. So uh, that part of the methodology was incredibly useful because it brought us into conversation um in ways that uh, that are not typical to kind of ethnographic interview whether it's structured unstructured open ended or whatever so so that that pretty much covers the methods
1: i really enjoyed those those songs being honest and uh, the monograph is also the story of a bunch of rock musicians who are sometimes called noisy people, as you put it. It also contributes to the noise question of Singapore as an urban space. Noise is an essential entity when it comes to rock music production. How would you describe this?
0: Uh, sonically, it is highly, re- highly regulated. Um everyone's living so close together uh, and sound is a a force that spreads or has the capacity to spread. Um, And so therefore uh, the responses can be many (laughs) like listening or shutting the door, you know? And, and so um, I guess beginning with that walk to my, colleague's house for dinner and noting that the call for prayer was turned inward on it within the mosque um that began to you know say to me let's pay attention to sound as you're you know doing your work around here walking around this place one thing i noticed was um in HDB flats, they often have a monthly meeting of, of members of the community board of the, you know, HDB flat or whatever. And there would be these whiteboards in which the agenda was laid out for the meeting and more often than not, I saw a number of these, the, the term or uh, the concept of noise pollution appeared over and over and over again. And, and so the community would rate different activities that take place in the void deck uh, in terms of no, noise pollution and, of course, weddings especially malay weddings uh funerals uh uh senior events all of these were rated in terms of of noise pollution um and and so therefore could be discussed amongst community members and and that was kind of a clue to me that um I needed to pay attention to the zoning aspects uh, uh, and the ways in which city spaces are zoned in order to manage sound and noise. Um, A friend of mine uh, is a, a... sound engineer and he's called in as new complexes are being built and so forth in order to kind of measure and manage the problems of sound um and and uh i mean it the th- this is life, especially from a sonic perspective, uh, that it's going to face regulation back in the day. And it still happens today. There was the Public Entertainment Act that uh, back in the sixties was legislated to keep sound at a minimum. So groups of people could not uh, form without a license uh, uh, and make sound, Um, you you had to get a license. Back in that day, uh, when Keong and James and the Stray Dogs were just beginning to emerge, the government was worried about these Sonics um, and instituted a campaign called the Yellow Culture Campaign, which was meant to silence uh, the sounds of rock music especially English language rock music because it of course embodied all of these terrible western uh, values and drug life and hippies and, and this kind of thing Um, so sound as noise or noise as sound has always been a feature of uh, kind of The modernity of Singaporean history and contemporary life and continues today Um, as it comes to rock music. I mean, it it has changed over time. As I said, the yellow culture years of the late 60s and early 70s um, have now receded. into the years in which rock music and English language rock music is being recognized as a part of national heritage so these things shift over time and um so so now the rock music scene can be is actually rather lively in in Singapore these days um even compared to when i started all of this back in a 2011-2012, um, it has changed dramatically. So, so that's my take on noise.
1: <laughs> the cultural heritage revival done by Singapore and the role of Stray Dogs, the rock music band, as a vernacular and intangible heritage is brought up in the text. As part of the cultural heritage conservation, you have all performed in venues of national importance like the Esplanade, Is there a difference when you perform, say, in Esplanade, compared to that of a venue like the hood situated currently in a mall?
0: Oh, my goodness. Huge differences. Yes, absolutely huge. But nonetheless, uh, uh, as Lily Kong once wrote, um, that... uh, uh, these notions of heritage, whether national or, or local, vernacular, converge and diverge in a variety of different ways. So, So even at the esplanade... <laughs> The convergence and divergence of different kinds of heritage were present and, and as they are at the hood, you know, local uh, bar with with live music. This was one of the most interesting aspects of the project to me um, was I got to be a part of and involved in heritage making. Um, it, it was remarkable. Remember, I refer to the stray dogs as vernacular heritage. And and in the book, um, remember that the stray dogs are a Katong band. Okay, they're from Katong. Uh uh all of the brothers and friends that formed the band walk the streets of Katong. <laughs> they actually wrote a song, Walking the Streets of Katong. Um, and this is a close net uh, community that transcended racial and ethnic lines. It's a, uh, um, uh, mixed kind of community located along Singapore's east coast. Can this community is considered the traditional home of, of, um, the island's Piranha Khan community, uh, Straits born Chinese, um, Katong's uh, colonial era began with a plant as a plantation area, and then that later was uh, uh reconstructed as a recreation retreat for rich Chinese businessmen. Um in the early 20th century, Katong was kind of a wealthy suburb. Uh where English language education was established with the area's first schools, you know. So, with the demise of plantations, the uh, the East attracted kind of Eurasian families, uh, and and encouraged in part by the English language schools, uh, and and as well as the establishment of of churches and and. Christianity in the area. Um, even though they spoke in the kind of Creole or patois of Puranicon, they all spoke English as well. Um, And so the cultural history of the kind of urban development of Kantong led to a kind of family life that you'll hear in Keong stories and in James stories in which English was common. Uh, And the community was cosmopolitan in outlook and demeanor, you know, for all of these different reasons. And uh, this is the vernacular heritage that emerges often as this community and especially this generation within the community get together to play music, to hang out, to have dinner, to, you know, uh, whatever event is going on. So that vernacular heritage, when we would rehearse, uh, would, would be central and a after you know rehearsing our music, we'd come out sit around uh, uh, in the common area where the rehearsal studios were, and that that katong was everywhere, haunting everything that we did, and. Um, uh, other friends from those days would be there listening to us or waiting to finish rehearsal. So, and then we'd get together and eat food and drink whiskey and all this kind of stuff. And, and it was Katong at the very center. Um, and so this is what I refer to and others refer to as kind of vernacular heritage, heritage made from the ground up. Um, whereas national heritage, as we just mentioned uh you know, its its history didn't always embrace this this Sonics and um, uh, but had begun to, uh, about four or five years after I arrived and um, kind of the, a rethinking of popular culture in the national history of Singapore was was beginning, and so the, the playing at the Esplanade was, of course, a huge site of national heritage which wants to sanitize, for the most part, uh, the drugs and hippiness and all of these kinds of things from that era. Um, And so we were presented uh, at the Esplanade with two performers who represented those highly sanitized sonic spaces back in the 60s and 70s, Veronica Young, who was uh, uh, um, uh, and uh, Vernon Cornelius, uh, uh, English language. Uh, Singaporean musicians that I think Veronica is known as the Connie Francis of Southeast Asia. So that gives you a sense of it. And and Vernon, I think, was known back then as the Cliff Richard of the shadows of, of Southeast Asia. So we arrive at the Esplanade. But before we arrive, the Esplanade wanted to see all of our music lyrics. They wanted to see our set list. They, we had to turn that all in first before we could even begin thinking about performing for uh, that concert. The guy that the producer of the concert was certainly a bit aware and a bit afraid of that he might lose control of us. <laughs> and, and so he's he was not checking in on Veronica and he was not checking in on Vernon in the way that he was checking in on us. He was afraid we were back in the dressing room drinking um maybe even smoking um cigarettes and and uh you know that kind of thing. He was worried that we wouldn't be able to perform our set professionally. And within the time frame that that we were given, he he. So all of these things related to kind of the vernacular of rock music, and and uh, uh, and this and these particular guys, the Stray Dogs, known to be kind of an alternative in the music scene, that appeared in the dressing room, <laughs> um, and and uh, when we took the stage. A couple colleagues of mine from NUS were out in the audience, and and uh, some Singaporeans turned to them, and and as we started to play, said to them, uh, "These guys were these guys were the alternative back then." And and so you know, it it, it that kind of convergence of different heritages, um, local and and national. Uh, were very common uh, in across different performance venues, whether it was the hood, where it would be deeply, deeply embedded in local vernacular heritage and, and of rock music, Katong, or or any other kind of um, aspect of that milieu. Uh, Whereas, you know, at the Esplanade, um, we kind of had to clean it up a little bit, uh but we surprised the heck out of of the producer we uh did the set within the allotted time almost exactly and and it went very well and the audience just responded uh with enthusiasm so um and so much so <laughs> that when Vernon came out after us, he started commenting on our band and our performance and on the Stray Dogs. I'm the one who invited the Stray Dogs up to Orchard Road. I'm, you know, this kind of thing. They never would have got a chance to play the Golden Venus if it hadn't been for me. Uh, so, you know, this it was these convergences and divergences that I found fascinating.
1: So your experiences of engaging with the sounds of a Javanese kampung or village helped in bringing deep sound as a conceptual category to study sounds. Deep sounds act as a metaphor for the cosmopolitan life in Singapore entangled in its urbanities. How does deep sound reflect the urban life in Singapore?
0: Okay, well... <clears throat> Yeah, I, I worked on that idea, uh, as you say, um, uh, when I was living in a kampong, an urban neighborhood in the city of Yogyakarta on the island of Java. Um, and how that began was was I, I was trying a neighbor. And some of the men from the neighborhood started some uh, kronjong rehearsals. Kronjong is a, a guitar string music that was brought to Southeast Asia uh, by the Portuguese, uh, and closely resembles the Portuguese fadu music. Um, and and of the sudden appearance of these music rehearsals. Uh, and and what to make of them in the context of Kampong social relations. So I began thinking about sound kind of then. And one uh, uh day, one what, what, what of the things that is required of all Kampong residents is to keep their, their places clean. And every afternoon around 3 o'clock, uh, you're expected to go out in front of your house and clean up the road in front of your house. Um, and this is noted through sound. You begin to hear the brooms sweep across the road through your window. And and that's when I got it. I said, you know, okay, it's sweeping, sweeping. As a sound is making social relations kind of, you know, reminding us all of the moral obligations to our community and keeping it clean, then making music must be the same thing, too, and and so. As I thought about the sweeping, the sound of the broom coming in through the window, I, I began to kind of associating that with other philosophers and uh, who were working on sound um, and that noted that sound spreads in space, so it has the capacity to connect, to share uh and therefore to evoke contact and participation and and that's what really clued me into this notion of deep sound um that an ethos and a social life could be actualized in sonic representation um that sound promotes the formation of social groupings uh and the capacity of sound just like the sweeping of the broom uh, to circulate and exchange attention to moral life. For me, these aspects of sound, and if they're there, make it deep. Okay. And that that's what I meant by deep sound. So for the urban scene in Singapore, and especially in this community, the sound, uh, uh, as I learned for, from this community that I worked with and, and uh, learned from, that um, there were some kind of also similar presencies within the sonic life of this community. And one was a cosmopolitanism and a cosmopolitan conviviality. And what I mean by that is the willingness of the members of the community to lean into difference, you know that that to me was like one of the great lessons of life I, I experienced that um uh this leaning into difference uh uh as a kind of again a habit um the other uh aspect was the vernacular heritage that we talked about um uh and the other was uh, this community was men and women uncles and aunties and young people and so forth and so on. Um, but there's the the circulating kind of social subject was often a masculine one um and so masculinity uh uh was present at all times in this community and and making rock music and and enjoying rock music um but also, Within the community, this masculinity had a kind of fraternity uh, that that um, all of us were engaged in that actually, in many ways, was organized around caring for each other, you know, as men, but as a community too. you know, And, and so to me, that was the depth of these sonic experiences i would call deep sound in uh, with these uh, in this singaporean urban milieu with this particular community of of musicians family and friends
1: from social relations we are going to the idea of sonic ethics where sonic obligations are formed through the multi-sensory ways of music production. This ethics is a part of the moral economy that you were also a part. How was your experience of being a part of such give and takes?
0: (laughs) Okay, well, again, this was another fascinating aspect of all of this. Um, Remember, uh, you know, anthropologists like to talk about when they talk about economics and economic anthropology and so forth, like to talk about different forms of exchange. And, And the dominant form of exchange here in this community was reciprocity. Okay, and and not contract market exchange where I pay for disinterested, they call it sometimes where I pay you for something and get very transactional. Right. Reciprocity establishes and encourages enduring relationships uh, anchored in obligation and trust, you know, Um, and of course, we can break those obligations and trust, and then the relationship often falls apart. Um, But this was the basis of of the moral economy of of this community. Um, It involved a broader kind of materiality of things that include sound and genre and people and urban space, all active in in what I refer to referencing Latour as assemblages. and the emphasis on reciprocal exchange in this community was, was again, to me, very interesting uh, because it kind of flew in the face of the stereotypes and expectations that we have around economic uh, life in Singapore, uh, rational economic behavior, Capitalist, you know, uh, uh, consumption and production uh, for profit, and wealth, and 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 these kinds of things. In fact, the reciprocity, the 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 moral economy of this group would be seen as kind of irrational from from that perspective, um, and was often referred to by people I knew in Singapore as irrational sometimes someone would say their business model isn't very good (laughs) you know and and so then i realized that i was kind of on to something um and and so the sonic expressions within this moral economy um is a kind of political economy that it that is at odds with the rational developmental state of, of that is Singapore and again Kiang often himself blamed the trajectory of his life and life chances on his own bad business model. Um, uh, Which kind of based in a gift logic, an approach to life for his ups and downs, unsound business practices. So, so that's what really struck me, and you picked up on it very nicely, um, in that the actual playing of music as a band is reciprocal, in fact, enforces reciprocity as I, as we exchange licks and keep ourselves on track through uh, uh, paying attention to how we're playing and what we're playing and the sonics of it all. Uh, it, it, it enforces that notion. Um, and being in a band enforces that notion on its own because you have to show up you have to be there so you're obligated you said you were saying i'm in this relationship and i'm obligated to you know show up and be there and practice and perform and and so all around this kind of moral economy of reciprocity is embedded uh, uh in various aspects of daily life and celebrated um so my experience in the give and take, I mean, it took a while, I had to figure out what it was I could give and take. And that's one of the beauties of ethnography, right? Uh, you know, and, and the long termness, we get to figure that stuff out. And and so the expectations related to me were, were different than those among the other members of the group. And the expectations and obligations and trust also vary depending on people's background, usually wealth, whether someone had a good job or not. Uh, You know, some of the older guys that had, had, uh, you know, were becoming retired or so forth and were established uh, economically, often paid for some of the things, you know. Um, Were they expected to? Yeah, kind of. You know, I wasn't held in that same set of obligations and, and trust. If I flew out to a conference or flew out of Singapore. I was expected on the way back through the airport to grab a bottle of whiskey at, at uh, you know, and and bring it to the the next gathering. I mean, it was those kinds of things. So I had to live the give and take. They're finally letting me give a little bit <laughs> um, uh, for the longest time. Uh, It was hard for me to find a way to give. But that was forming the band, writing music, writing the book.
1: Sound, Uh, be it in the form of music or noise, is a community maker in the study. Sound entails the stories of the making of male friendships. Can you speak a bit about your friendship with your interlocutors?
0: Well sometimes it's hard for me to talk about um i when i wrote this section of the book i didn't know how to do it uh it's so personal and deeply emotional for me because uh my life with these guys remains uh intimate and strong um and i hadn't had friends along these lines for for quite a while as my academic career proceeded. <laughs> um, so, so it was deeply moving for me to become friends with them. I, I try to describe it as a kind of relationship between the instrumental and the effective. I mean, there were certainly some instrumental elements of it all. I'm Foreign talent at an uh, Asia Research Institute uh, uh, fell into this community and began thinking about it as a project. So there were those kinds of instrumentalities associated with it. I mean, we relied on each other in various ways, economically and socially, and so forth. So there, there were those kinds of instrumentalities and in all of this, um, and. Over time, the uh, the affect of our relationships uh, uh, became deeper and deeper, so much that we could get mad at each other, you know, uh, and and that and not talk to each other for a while, you know, and and, and that kind of thing. Um, th- I think in one way the the kind of moral economy that we just spoke of within the community organized around reciprocity help foster uh, the intimacies uh, of becoming friends. Now, you know, if you read the literature and anthropology on friends. Especially from the point of view of an anthropologist, many critiques, critics argue that this is just a social construction or the imagination of the anthropologist deeply in need of friends. Um and and there is some of that, I I think, you know, for sure. Uh but also it, it it was the way we were there for each other over and over and over again um and and the trust and obligation associated with that that i i i, I mean i'm safe to say it, and i think kiang and james and others would say we, we're friends um and again this shaped the work in in ways that um because it shaped our conversations it, it it shaped our activities um uh a little differently than uh, i had done research previously on diabetes i'm a medical anthropologist uh, uh basically and then i did this project on on rock music in singapore and and i did not have that de- degree of of um you know, intimacy with with the uh, guys I was working with in the VA clinic and and, in the United States who uh, were managing their diabetes are the hospitals and the clinics I worked in in Indonesia with doctors and and, uh, sufferers of diabetes who were trying to manage their disease. This was totally different. Um, I think in some ways the friendship shaped what i wrote about and whereas that didn't enter the picture so much with with the diabetes research and i'll say this one of the ways that the friendship shaped what i wrote about was i didn't write about some things you know um that i thought would be inappropriate since we were not using pseudonyms we were not disguising the places uh uh you can find all of these guys and all of the places in Singapore today. So so it kind of censored me in some ways in terms of what I wrote about.
1: The book also contributes to the discourse of inter-Asian connections through the sonic circuits formed as part of performances in Asian urban centers like Minh City or Malacca. What would you like to talk about these Indo-Asian experiences that you had as a musician and ethnographer?
0: Aha, boys' trips—that's what we—that's what they're called. Boys' trips. So again, that masculinity, fraternal care, that kind of stuff is is all circulating. Uh, in in as we traveled, Malacca and and KL was in there at one point, and and Ho Chi Minh City a couple of times. Um, and as boys' trips, the travel kind of heightened that those ideas around masculinity and fraternal care. As you see in the book, if you uh, I use a lot of WhatsApp uh, communication as we're traveling around Ho Chi Minh City and so forth, and and it's all about caring for each other. <laughs> the other aspect of uh, of it is that the two things have really surprised me. One was uh, I got an interesting perspective on Singaporean notions of urban modernity. <laughs> um, every place we traveled was not quite as modern as Singapore, or it was the way Singapore was in the past. <laughs> you know, so so th- I found that fascinating, uh, especially when we were in Myanmar. Um, this was a common theme, but Ho Chi Minh City too. The other, uh, uh, so it, it was a kind of curious insight on um, Singaporeans' feelings about where they are at in terms of development, modernity. The the other aspect that that was interesting was, and you can see this in the WhatsApp communications, is that these, the activities that we were involved in besides performing shows, replicated what uh, uh, I had read about as, uh r and r activities that american military and british military became involved in during the american uh, war in vietnam uh and that and singapore was an r and r site uh and so when we would go to these other places getting your teeth fixed buying cheap meds getting massages getting a haircut all of these kinds of attentions to the body that were very common r and activities of military men back in the day, a uh, kind of filled our daily schedule. Okay. Especially Ho Chi Minh city. Uh, and, and, and so that really uh, struck me. Uh, uh, and, and as I thought about it, wasn't surprising given the generation of guys that, that, um, I was hanging out with. The other aspect of this was uh, when we were in Ho Chi Minh City, the, this was my first time to Saigon. I'm 69 years old. I grew up as a teenager protesting the Vietnam War in the United States very intensely. I hardly ever went to school. It was I was out in the streets or involved in some kind of organizing or, or uh, that kind of thing. And so we pulled into Ho Chi Minh City and drove past the American embassy where the helicopters had evacuated American personnel as the war, as the, as the Americans were losing the war. And and that resonated with me very differently than the guys I was sitting next to. Um, and we, th- this even became more clear. We were performing a show and after the end of the show, we went up to a, a rooftop restaurant to celebrate. And we were passing around an acoustic guitar and stuff. And, and as the Singaporeans kind of, uh, uh, saw it as a different kind of space than I was than I was experiencing it and seeing it. And for me it was the site of all of this history in the United States. Of being a, a war protester, I couldn't believe I was in Saigon. I had to pinch myself when we were playing music and playing an old Jimi Hendrix song. I couldn't believe I was in Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City, playing Jimi Hendrix. You know, I mean, it was I I I, I had kind of out of body of experiences. For them, it was a, a kind of modernity in their history that continued but resonated a little differently. Keong had wanted, and the Stray Dogs had wanted to play the military bases in Saigon in late 1960s. Keong's father wouldn't let him do it because he would be exposed to heroin and Western values and, and you know, uh, come back an addict and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I could tell from the we sang Route 66 and all these kinds of songs about modernity in the United States. And, and I, I could tell that in their experiences, it had been it they had seen it as a place of a kind of modernity um, that they could participate in and nurture uh, English language, rock music or whatever. So so uh, all of that was, was present and fascinating as we traveled around Southeast Asia.
1: <laughs> the sonic circulations of the text are an assemblage of multiple actors, including human and non-human networks. It contributes to a politics of musicking, involving spatial, temporal, and even linguistic questions of Singapore as a city space. Can you explain more about the city's sonic circulations and musicing?
0: Yeah, oh boy, this is a huge <laughs> uh question. Um I mean I think to begin with this, <clears throat> I mean the main analytic kind of used in the book is one that works inductively, which we anthropologists like to do. Um, observing relationships involved in phenomenon that Latour refers to as the social uh, and relationships that are assembled and reassembled in spatial temporalities, right? Uh, Requiring and engaging associations of heterogeneous elements, whether it be the guitar, the genre, the musician, the lick, the, the stage, the on and on and on. Um, and, and so this is where I was going with that kind of uh, association of heterogeneous elements of human and non-human mediators and intermediaries that for me and drawing upon Latour forms the social. So so that was always present in this book. Um I also, similar to Iowa Ong, uh considered the city as a milieu, as a field of of kind of intervention, again, an assemblage in which individuals and populations and groups and uh, uh put into conjunction again as an assemblage uh different elements and events and associations and images and activities as a way of being in the world. Uh, I think Iwa Ong refers to it as worlding. So from that perspective, and this may be one of the weaknesses of the book, that it appears that I ignore any kind of racial or ethnic social relations, uh, uh and in fact, I don't, our gender, I don't seem to discuss those in terms of our relationships and and discourse and, and that kind of thing, because I am interested in working inductively and observing relationships involved in phenomena. Now, <clears throat> Latour kind of argues for this because he's arguing against the application of kind of deductive reasoning coming in with a, a model that um, then we see the participations involved in that model. And for Singapore, of course, it's either the Chinese, Malay, Indian, other model of, of racial and ethnic relations um, and and, and gender um oftentimes from the perspective of of kind of chinese singaporeans um and so i allowed that to emerge in the book but don't identify it or focus on it and so people were who read the book some were upset with that because they didn't they thought i was ignoring power and that kind of thing. But that's not what I was interested in. Uh, um, I was interested in how that manifested within this group. And and it manifested as cosmopolitan conviviality. You know, it's not that there weren't tensions um, uh, among different uh, uh, people of ethnic Backgrounds. Um, when we would rehearse in the studio, uh, there was us and there were Malay bands and and doing kind of different kinds of music and and that kind of thing. Um, but we would all end up in the common area <laughs> afterwards. And if we were drinking and the Malay guys weren't, well, so what? You know, I mean, and we would talk music and the how terrible the rehearsal space was or whatever that kind of thing um so that was played down and and the woman uh who accepted my book for publication for nus described it to me as a friendly book and and i think that is an apt description and and what i was going for although I, I certainly agree that I could have explored, uh, you know, some of the, the social relationships and in, in terms of power dynamics a little more. So, I mean, I, it's clear that I was kind of enamored with the egalitarianism of, of the community and the group. And, and uh, that's what I experienced over the six years with these guys. And so that's what I wanted to come forth in my analysis
1: Going to our last question, the cosmopolitanism in the project is an embodiment of the sonic history of Singapore. You bring in sonic resonance as a way of understanding the modernity question enmeshed with the city's cosmopolitan nature. Can you briefly discuss on this aspect of your work?
0: Yeah, I mean, this is, um, remember, I, I... There are multiple modernities going on here, right? I mean, remember we talked about Katong and the neighborhood and the composition of that neighborhood and its history and and the the kind of centrality of of the English language. This certainly was a kind of modernity that not experienced in other places in Singapore, right? I mean, and, and these guys embodied... This kind of modernity um, uh, and continue to nurture it throughout their lives. Uh, there are other modernities uh, in in Singapore experienced in different ways by different groups of people. Um, so, in some ways, the the kind of history. Uh, the, keong's history james history all the other guys that came from this neighborhood uh shaped my uh emphasis on cosmopolitanism now however you know as i as i begin the book singapore is a crossroads and always has been a crossroads even before it was a british colony you know and and Uh, its location geographically and historically um, have made this place a place where people lean into difference, you know, in particular ways. It's advantageous in in a crossroads, you know, Um, but like the for blues music, the crossroads is a particularly important uh, uh, historical moment when a very famous blues player, Robert Johnson, uh, in the early 20th century, finds himself at a crossroads, uh, talking with the devil, asking the 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 devil to uh, give him the gift of blues music, um, and so it, it's kind of a his life becomes uh, Robert Johnson's life becomes very difficult after that. So this kind, of, but yet he's an incredible blues player. So this kind of Faustian bargain with with that takes place at the crossroads is is um something that that i think you know uh, appears most prominently in the kind of approach of the singaporean state to manage its affairs so authoritatively um you know i there are other aspects of that bargain and and that experience of being at the crossroads um, that are particular to Singapore. But but again, I, I it's always been a crossroads. It re- continues to be a crossroads. Um, and and to me, this inflects cosmopolitanism within the city state of Singapore in a variety of ways and angles, depending on who you're with, where you're hanging out, that kind of thing. So, yeah.
1: Thank you, Steve Rizaka, for joining the New Books Network. I'll be back soon with another new book. Stay tuned.